We pray that your Holy Spirit would now help us to understand your word and that we would also be helped to be eager to obey it. Whether it seems fearful to us or difficult, we pray that we would trust in your power to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Revenge is a dish best served cold, or so the saying goes. There's something satisfying, isn't there, about the experience of seeing someone who has wronged us gets what, get what's coming to them. The experience is even sweeter when it's our own hand that delivers what we perceive as justice to the one who's harmed us. Now, the desire for justice is a good one, but the scripture has a lot to say about vengeance, which, if is exercised by mere humans, is not the same as justice. So tonight we're going to be considering four key passages of scripture to see what light they shed on the issue of taking vengeance, and then we'll look at an example from recent events. Our first passage is in Romans chapter 12, which most of us in the past month or two have gone through in Sunday school. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9 through verse 21. I'll be reading from the New English Translation. Love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness in honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal. Be be enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing this, for in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, as Paul is exhorting the Romans to live out the norms of the kingdom of God in this passage, he touches on the believer's response to unjust treatment a couple of times. He says, instead of cursing those who persecute you, bless them. When someone perpetrates evil on you, don't dish back the same out to them. He says that followers of Jesus are peaceful, accommodating people, hard to pick a fight with. Uh, 
we aren't to take vengeance ourselves. But as Paul says, we are to give place to God's wrath. Or as the New American Standard says, leave room for the wrath of God. It's as if we're, we're told to step out of the way to let God's righteous wrath do its job. Vengeance is above our pay grade. We're supposed to get out of the way and let God handle meeting out punishment. Now, this passage isn't just a grocery list of virtues for the Christian life. It may seem like that. These exhortations are interconnected. It's instructive to notice that woven into this passage right before the prohibition on vengeance, we find two statements that urge humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. Don't have a high opinion of yourself. Relinquishing vengeance and stepping out of God's way to let him handle things requires humility, the cardinal virtue of the Christian's life. The Christian who leaves judgment to God is a humble, peaceful, genuinely loving, God-dependent person. The one who takes vengeance for himself is full of pride and therefore the very definition of a fool. Note also that while God reserves vengeance for himself, he immediately thereafter promises that he will indeed use that vengeance. He will repay those who have treated his children unjustly. The fact that God really does judge all sins frees us to treat even those who have made themselves our enemies with love. And the fact that we show love instead of retaliating simply makes their unjust treatment of us that much more sinful and deserving of judgment. That's how I understand this interesting and heavily debated phrase, for in doing this you will be heaping burning coals on his head. There are several ways to look at that, though. Paul sums up this teaching by exhorting us not to be overcome by evil, that would be giving in to our urge to exact revenge, but rather to overcome evil with good by showing love to those who want nothing more than to hurt us. This is a love, a goodness that defeats its enemies by making them family. And where does Paul get this teaching to show love to even one's enemies? He gets it from Jesus himself. It brings us to our next passage, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those 
who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, just a couple of clarifications before we address this particular text directly. Jesus is not forbidding his followers from using a governmental justice system in this passage. The Bible makes it very clear that God establishes governments specifically specifically to see that justice is done as much as possible on this earth so that people can live as peaceful and righteous a life as possible. If you're the victim of a crime, you should report it to the police. You should report the crime and allow the justice system to work as well as it can so that the perpetrator will either learn not to sin this way in the future or so that they can be prevented from doing so and hurting others because they're incarcerated. Using a justice system properly is not the same as taking vengeance. So with that caveat in place, let's direct our attention to Jesus' words. Jesus sets the tone for his followers here. We are not to insist upon our own rights. We're not to exact revenge for personal injuries or injustices. We're even to let people take advantage of us. Now, carefully, us, ourselves, personally, not the people around us. The scriptures make it clear that God's people are to defend the helpless, to be advocates for the voiceless, and to see that justice is done for others. But on a personal level, rather than getting revenge, we are to love our enemies and even pray for them. Why? The motive that Jesus gives in this passage is that of imitating our heavenly Father, so that you may be like your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He, puts, he gives rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. Though a final judgment is indeed coming, at this time he shows love and forbearance to all people. And beyond that, he showed us his former enemies love by crushing his own son in judgment while we were still in rebellion against him. So the love we show has to be real. It has to cost us something like it cost him. We aren't like our father if we only love those who are easy to love. People will see the family resemblance when we love those who nobody would think of loving, our enemies. A third passage to consider. Turn to Hebrews, please, chapter 10. Starting in verse 26. He's warning against apostasy in the beginning here. For if we deliberately keep on sinning, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth. No further sacrifice for sins is left for us, but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. Someone who rejected the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much greater the punishment do you think that person deserves who has contempt for the Son of God? and profanes the blood of the covenant that made him holy, and insults the spirit of grace. For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Here's that quote again from Deuteronomy 32, which we'll read next Wednesday. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Then he pivots. But remember, the former days when you endured a harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. At times you were publicly exposed to abuse and afflictions, and at other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way. For in fact, you shared the sufferings of those in prison, and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy, because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence, because it has great reward. For you need endurance in order to do God's will and so receive what is promised. For just a little longer and he who is coming will arrive and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. But we are not among those who shrink back and thus perish, but are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. The writer of Hebrews is warning his readers against apostasy, contrasting the merciless judgment of the law given by Moses with the even more terrifying fury of fire that will consume those who show contempt for the Son of God, profaning his blood and insulting the Holy Spirit by abandoning their professed faith in Jesus as their Savior. But then he turns to those who are steadfast in their faith, reminding them of their own suffering, not the, like the suffering of those in eternal damnation, but undeserved suffering in this life. Suffering for the name of Jesus. He gives them encouragement based on their track record of faith. He first sets forth a list of the trials they endured. Public abuse, afflictions, walking alongside their brothers and sisters through their experience of persecution and imprisonment, even accepting the confiscation of your belongings with joy. That's quite a list, and it's not one that actually seems to offer much encouragement. I mean, can you imagine having the government confiscate your belongings because you publicly profess your faith in Christ and then being at peace with that outcome? Even rejoicing that this happened to you. That is some upside-down thinking, if you ask most people, even many who claim to be Christians. Why not respond with outrage? Why not demand your rights? Why not exact revenge? Or why not despair? Because they knew something. That's what it says. Because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. They knew something that changed the way they thought about the here and now. They knew that in Jesus they had an an eternal Inheritance, or what is called here a better and lasting possession. 
No need to respond in anger or despair at losing mere stuff. It's not going to last anyway. Right? We, we have treasures, but we don't keep, him, keep them here in this dustbin called earth. Our treasure is safe in heaven. Indeed, our treasure is Jesus and all that the Father has lavished on his well-beloved Son. And living faithfully here and now requires that we confidently hold to the truth of our promised heavenly inheritance. That confidence, that faith, will fuel our endurance through the difficulties and injustices that we experience here and now. That is why we're able to respond with love rather than with vindictiveness because we are looking forward and up in faith. Our final passage is in 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Starting in verse 18. <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. For this finds God's favor. If because of conscience toward God, someone endures hardships in suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you were called. He's saying you were called to suffer for doing good. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were, you were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Peter here <clears throat> starts by addressing slaves, but this is, this is for all of us. He says, endure unjust treatment without retaliating. God is pleased when you do this because you're acting like his son. We've been called to suffer for doing good because our leader Jesus did the same. And as Christ reminds us in the Gospels, no servant is greater than his master. We can expect this to be the norm for us. We're expected to follow the trail that he has blazed for us. Now, if anyone ever suffered innocently, it was Jesus, right? <clears throat> he was completely sinless. Nevertheless, when he was attacked, he did not take up his own cause. He didn't take revenge or retaliate with a verbal cheap shot. He didn't rage against those telling lies about him. When he's arrested by the club-wielding mob, he didn't call on his bodyguard of angels to annihilate the insolent sinner humans who dared to impugn his holiness. 
Indeed, when his hands and feet were nailed to the rough wood of the cross, he was silent like a lamb in its last moments before its throat is cut. Rather, instead, Peter writes, Jesus committed himself to God who judges justly. Even Jesus himself, who had every right to take vengeance, committed himself to God, entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. He put his own personal right to revenge aside in favor of his father's wise justice. And the text says that Jesus did all this as an example to us of how we should respond to mistreatment. We are to be so secure in God's wise application of justice that we are unconcerned about our own treatment because we know that he will see that justice is done in his perfect time and in exactly the right way that brings about the most justice and gives himself the most glory. This way of thinking requires seeing things through the eyes of faith. Faith that God will indeed make all things right, even though it certainly doesn't seem to appear that way here and now. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Peter then takes the illustration further in verse 24. Not only did Jesus not retaliate or seek revenge, he picked up the sins of the very kind of people who were killing him, people like you and me, and in effect he said, Father, these sins are mine. I did all this. And then he submitted to the just, furious, devastating wrath of his father in our place. God took vengeance that day on sins, on our sins, the sins of all who trust in Jesus. He poured out the wrath that we stored up for ourselves, the judgment that we've earned with every breath of our sinful lives and every motive of our sin-sick hearts, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath destined for us and drained it bone dry. And so we will never know what it's like to suffer the vengeance of God if we believe. There's no wrath left for us. The sins of all who believe have already been avenged on Jesus. But what about those who don't believe? On whom will God pour his wrath for their sins? Or will he leave his sword of judgment just hanging on the wall forever? Of course not. To refuse to punish the sin of unbelievers would be a great injustice, contrary to God's very nature. In order to be just, God must punish sin. All of it. And the scripture is full of descriptions of the day of God's judgment on those who oppose him. It is coming. As sure as his mercy is now available while he shows patience and forbearance, but it is coming. Indeed, as Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who don't believe will have vengeance taken on their sins by God himself. And so since the sins of those who believe are avenged by God on Christ, and the sins of those who refuse to believe are avenged by God upon themselves, we have no need or right to attempt to seek vengeance on our own.
Now, just a few summarizing observations and implications from the passages that we've considered together. So not only is vengeance better off left to God, t- taking it for ourselves is sinful. Most obviously, it's theft, right? God specifically claims vengeance as his own property. Vengeance is mine, he says. And to take it from him is stealing what is rightfully his. Our taking of vengeance also usurps God's prerogative to punish sin. It denies his authority to judge and it is full of pride. When a man or a woman takes vengeance on a fellow human, they're pretending that a mere fallen human can do the job that only an omniscient, holy, just creator can do. In every instance of evil, God is the one who is primarily sinned against. Even in the most heinous interpersonal sense. He is, as the holy creator, the king, the lawgiver, he is the most offended party. So he alone has the right, the requisite knowledge, the wisdom, and the means to inflict vengeance on sinners that actually achieves justice. Any attempts that originate with us just make more sin to judge, though God's hands are not tied by our lack of obedience. God makes it clear in the scriptures that he can and does sometimes use even the sinful, vengeful acts of wicked men to accomplish at least part of his own holy vengeance. Now, at its root, taking personal vengeance opposes the gospel. Human vengeance says, I'll make you pay for what you did to me. The gospel says, if you'll put your trust in Jesus you'll find that he paid the price for what you did to me. Won't you embrace him and the free forgiveness that he offers you? Vengeance is all about condemning the person who's hurt you. The gospel bids them dread no condemnation if they are in Christ Jesus. Declining to take personal revenge is not only the right thing to do, it's also a distinctive mark of a true Christian as we saw earlier in 1 Peter. This kind of counterintuitive action can't be hid for long. It's so unnatural and upside down, according to the world's way of thinking, that news of it spreads like wildfire. Who among us hasn't heard the jaw-dropping story of justice, forgiveness, and grace that Rachel Denhollander brought to our attention in 2018? Rachel was the first of over 100 gymnasts to publicly accuse Dr. Larry Nassar of abuse of the most degrading kind, abuse that lasted years and took its toll on so many young women and girls who were supposed to be in his medical care. Rachel, once a gymnast, is now a lawyer, and she is our sister in Christ. When she gave her victim impact statement at Nassar's sentencing, She turned heads with what she said. She very appropriately asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence on the convicted criminal for the protection of future gymnasts and to show the worth of those whom Nassar had harmed. But then, rather than wishing aloud that she could kill him, as one might expect, or hoping that he himself would be victimized in prison or that he would rot in hell as his just desert, she said this, You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done 
is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach this point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, this sister of ours is showing us the way to love our enemies, to pray for those who mistreat us, to leave vengeance with God, who alone knows how and when to use it. As Christians, if this is how we treat those who hurt us, people around us will notice. They will have a hard time understanding, but they will know there is something special, something foreign, something fundamentally good about how we're acting. And that's when we point them to Jesus, the one who said about those who nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The one who suffered his father's fearsome and destructive wrath in our place so that we could be, like him, beloved sons and daughters of God.